This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about litigation, which I know sounds maybe a little boring, but hang with me here. For many Americans opposed to the policies of then-President Donald Trump, the litigation brought by Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson was an essential element of the so-called resistance. The AG first made headlines in this regard when his office challenged Trump's so-called Muslim travel ban in early 2017. His office then continued to sue the administration many, many times. When the dust cleared, Ferguson's office had won 50 out of 52 decisions in cases against the Trump administration. Those wins were highly touted at the time, but with Trump's premature exit from the White House, Ferguson's star turn on the national stage has ended, for the time being. His work hasn't. As you'll hear in this conversation from the 2022 Crosscut Festival, Ferguson has been busy representing Washington in a number of high-profile lawsuits, including one against the Biden administration. And he's been weighing in on state legislation concerning police accountability and gun safety. The interviewer here is the esteemed and mostly retired journalist Essex Porter, formerly of Cairo TV here in Seattle. He opens the conversation with questions about the leaked draft opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court that signaled the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. I know we've talked a lot about the draft opinion on this podcast, but if you are a Washington resident, this is the conversation to pay close attention to. Ferguson's is likely the most important and informative take that you'll hear. Also, This is the second of our series of conversations with statewide leaders from Washington State. You'll hear Essex refer to our first conversation with Governor Jay Inslee. If you haven't yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to that conversation. It's the one right before this one. Oh, and one note before we get started. Because Essex and the Attorney General discuss gun legislation here, It's important to note that this conversation took place on May 7th, 2022, a week before the mass shooting in Buffalo. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Attorney General Ferguson, hello and welcome to the Crosscut Festival. Good morning, Essex. Hey, great to see you and everybody else who's joined in today. Thank you. Uh, you know, let's we're going to talk uh, at least uh, for half an hour or so. Uh, I've got questions. We'll explore a bunch of subjects. Uh, we're also inviting the audience uh, to uh, submit questions as well, and we'll uh, get to a lot of those. Uh, let me start off with uh, sort of a, a big philosophical question before we get to the details of a lot of breaking news on the justice front, even this this week. But, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in, you know, more of your personal motivations. Uh, how do you define justice? And, and what inspired you to devote your career to pursuing justice? Well, thanks for that question, uh, Essex. And by the way, th- thanks to all the organizers at Crosscut for, for this wonderful festival. It's great to be part of it again. Um, 
you know, ethics, it's interesting. I mean, questions related to sort of how one gets to be the way they are is are always tricky, right? As you and everybody here can appreciate, there's so many influences in our lives, I, I think, and uh, it's hard to, to quantify. I guess what I would say for me to start with the second question first, of kind of what, what motivates me or how I came to be in the job that I have or, or my interest in, in justice, um, obviously a family influence is obviously critical for anybody. I'm from a large family. Um, my late father and my mother, who's thankfully still alive, were big role models for me. My mom was a public school teacher. She taught special education in the public schools, in addition to helping to raise seven kids, six boys. So, you know, at the dinner table, she talked a lot uh, when we were done talking about uh, the Huskies and, and the Seahawks. Uh, she talked a lot about what her day was like as a special education teacher. And, and I, I remember that always had a big influence on me, the idea that not everybody starts off with a level playing field in, in, in this world. And my father certainly had a I guess the way I would say it, Essex, is a very clear sense of right and wrong it is the way I would describe my my father for sure. And I think he instilled that in his kids. And so uh, I guess what I would say beyond that is I know I had a, a year after I finished college where I served in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. It's like a VISTA program or Peace Corps, but it's through the Jesuits. And here in the United States is where I served. And I served in an inner city community. I lived there and I worked there. And and for a kid who grew up on Queen Anne Hill, who had a lot of advantages in life, it was an eye-opening experience for me uh, to see some inequities in our system. And that gets to your question about justice, right? I, I think for me, I realized it's not a level playing field for everybody. Not everybody's born on Queen Anne Hill with an intact family and with lots of possibilities in their lives. And I remember when I was doing that Jesuit volunteer work, I remember thinking to myself that um, I felt I could help people in the job I was doing. But I remember thinking to myself, if I ever had a job, in my life where I had some greater influence that um, I would try to use that influence um, to really make sure we had a more equitable society and to use whatever skills I had or office I held to do what I could to ensure that. And, and being attorney general, thankfully, probably issues we'll talk about is, from my standpoint, the ideal platform to try and create a more just system in our state and really across the country as well. Yeah. Could you talk a little more about how you define justice? How do you know when you've, what is it? How do you know when you've achieved it? Well, justice is elusive, right? Essex, I mean, that's a complicated question. I guess in an ideal state, right? Justice is a world, a society in which everybody has access to equal opportunities, to thrive, to live a productive life, to live a healthy life, all the things we, we want. That's justice. And where no one is above the law, right? We are all accountable to the law. We're all equal under the law. And, you know, we live in a society that isn't always that way, right? That the powerful have certain advantages, uh, where presidents exceed their authority under the law, where we have challenges for access to justice. Justice is a noble concept. I, I live my life by it. But look, uh, um, justice only works if everybody has access to the courts, if everybody has access to a legal system that ensures that equality, that everybody has access to a legal advocate who can help them if they've got uh, someone in their life who's not playing by the rules, a business, a landlord, a car dealer, a president, whatever it might be. And so I guess I really view my role as attorney general as trying to be the people's attorney, the law firm for the people to provide better access to justice and ensure justice for everybody in our state. Mm. Well, let's get to the news, uh, the, the, the biggest legal news uh, in the days uh, leading up uh, to our discussion uh, was uh, the release of the Supreme Court's draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade, overturning abortion rights. Uh, and that raises uh, a lot of questions. Um, you know, and I think, you know, for those of us here in Washington State, 
we know that abortion rights are codified into law, but how might this draft opinion, if it does become the opinion of the Supreme Court, how might it threaten abortion rights here in Washington State? Yeah, Essex, th thanks for that question. I'm sure it's on a lot of people's minds who are, who are watching this conversation. So I, I guess first, just to reemphasize a point that was embedded in your question, that is that because the people of Washington State approved an initiative a number of years ago that essentially codified abortion rights here in Washington State, even if that draft opinion that I suspect everybody has seen, even if the court approves that as written, that would not impair or restrict or limit the rights to a legal and safe abortion here in Washington State. In other words, that opinion leaves it to the states. So you've seen a number of states that have these trigger laws. If Roe v. Wade is essentially overturned, those states will outlaw abortion. But there are a number of states like Washington that have it codified. So we'd be protected from that standpoint. So that's number one. Uh, number two, you know, it's, uh, it's deeply troubling that uh, the court appears to be heading the direction of limiting rights for women in our country that have been around for decades, what we call precedent upon precedent, right? There's a respect for precedent. Roe v. Wade has been upheld by the courts over the years. So now the idea that that'd be taken away for women is deeply alarming. As attorney general, my job would be to make sure that the statutory um, assurance that we have in Washington state, if there's legal challenge to that, we would defend that, of course. Number two, to work with the governor to make sure that Washington is a place that folks from Idaho or other states can come to get a safe and legal abortion. That's something the state will be working on to be sure. And third, one more thing I'll add to Essex is that we're seeing some states proposing bills that would make it illegal for a woman to come to a different state to get a legal abortion and to criminalize folks who assist that woman, for example. Anything like that that impairs the ability of Washington state to provide safe and legal abortions for any woman in this country, that is where Washington State could be involved legally to protect the rights of that woman to come to our state to access the full range of reproductive health options that they're entitled to here in Washington State. So we're still in early days on this. We need to wait to see what that opinion comes out, but there could definitely be legal ramifications, and that's one that my office is obviously getting prepared for. People in Washington State uh, voted twice, in fact, uh, to codify Roe versus Wade. But you know, the last time, I think that was 91, that was a really narrow uh, yes vote uh, on abortion rights. Uh, you know, can't the legislature simply change the current law codifying Roe versus Wade and maybe to conform to the Supreme Court draft decision? Yes, in, in other words, a legislature could take action that would reverse those protections. Congress could, could pass a federal law, right, that would limit abortion rights across the country. So this Supreme Court decision, if it comes out, if it really is a final decision, is by no means necessarily the end of the conversation when it comes to Roe versus Wade by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, our role in the AG's office will be clear, right, to defend that, as you mentioned, uh, initiative that passed by a very narrow margin. Now, look, I think since that was adopted, the people of the state of Washington are even more firmly in support of legal and safe abortions here in Washington state. In addition, I'd say on the other hand, Governor Inslee at a press conference we had just this last week has even talked about the idea of a constitutional amendment to enshrine and protect legal and safe abortions here in Washington state. So again, we're in early days in reacting to this unprecedented release of a draft opinion to be sure Essex, but I guess I'd want the folks who are listening to know is that, hey, my job is to defend and enforce Washington state law. Here in Washington state, women have the right to a safe and legal abortion. And it's my job and the job of my team to make sure we do everything in our power to protect them. Yeah. The uh, 
draft decision uh, basically says that uh, there is little or no right to privacy, which the Roe v. Wade decision is based on. If there is no constitutional right to privacy, what other rights do we now have? What other rights are at risk? Yeah, I'm, so, I'm so glad you asked that question, Essex, because at that press conference, I alluded to this point, right, that if we really have a Supreme Court that is saying, hey, we look at our document, our Constitution from over 200 years ago, and unless you have a right that is specifically spelled out in that Constitution, well, guess what, Americans, you don't have it. Well, a right to privacy is one such example. And if that is the case, the right to marry, right, the person you love could be jeopardized. Uh, the rights to other forms of reproductive rights could be jeopardized as well. The right to parent, uh, the list goes on and on and on. And so, look, this draft opinion, if it becomes law, is you know an earthquake when it comes to reproductive rights, to be sure. It also has the potential to be an earthquake, a legal earthquake, when it comes to rights that Americans have essentially taken for granted now for many, many years, if the Supreme Court is essentially on a path of eviscerating a right to privacy. That would, to your question, lead to all sorts of questions about other rights that are protected by a right to privacy. And you can be sure that there will be organizations and individuals that try to get those kinds of cases before the Supreme Court again, if they think and sense that's where the court is heading. Final question for now on this. I see our audience questions coming in and they have some questions as well, but we'll move on to some other subjects. But before we leave, I, this is a draft decision. It leaked from the Supreme Court. Um, it is rare that this sort of thing leaks and certainly almost unprecedented that it leaks in this detail. Well, what do you think of the idea of the leak? I mean, was it was it wrong for this to leak? That's a tough question, Essex. I, mean, I guess, to be candid, I've not spent a whole lot of time thinking about that component of this, right? I've been so focused on the earlier questions you asked. What does this mean for, for women in the state of Washington across the country? And so um, I, I guess I can't speak to what, what, what's right or what's wrong, right? Um, what I will say is it is most assuredly unprecedented, um, and especially on a case of this magnitude. And the court has, of course, operated in terms of the drafting of those opinions, right, over many, many, many years in almost total secrecy. So I guess I'm not in a position to say, hey, who knows who leaked it? Someone from the right, from the left, who the heck knows? I guess what I would say, though, from my standpoint is it's not a shock what's in that draft opinion. I'll just be real honest. I mean, I don't think one's been paying attention if one's surprised by what's in that opinion. This has been coming for some time. Um, and, and I guess I'm just focused on what's in that draft opinion and preparing our office for a future if that opinion is actually approved by a majority of the court. Yeah. Uh, one of the very big issues over the last uh, few years here has been police accountability. The legislature made changes in 2021 uh, to limit bias policing. Uh, then uh, there were uh, concerns and even uh, protests from law enforcement agencies. So the legislature made some changes in 2022. I, I want to focus on one of those changes. Uh, and that was uh, the use of physical force to stop someone and whether that physical force needs to be used based on a reasonable suspicion or a uh, uh, Boy, and I'm trying to remember, you'll help me. Probable with cause, probably. Probable, probable cause, probably. Cause. Scary stops, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, um, you know, my, my question is, you know, the legislature decided uh, to use the, the more relaxed standard reasonable suspicion and made that change. 
does that mean officers are now less accountable and more able to act with bias? No, I don't think so, Essex. I mean, my sense is that officers are more accountable as a result of these changes we've seen in the legislature over the past two sessions. And look, we could spend a whole hour on these, obviously, as you know, and I'm not a member of the legislature, but of course have an interest in this subject. Um, and, and we issued some legal opinions around the first round of changes the legislature made as your audience, as our audience probably recalls, two sessions ago. And those were changes led by legislators like Jesse Johnson in the 30th district, who really were trying to move um, after all sorts of national headlines, um, George Floyd and other situations where really the use of force was wildly disproportionate and even criminal, uh, particularly against individuals of color. And so in that spirit, the legislature took a series of reforms to make progress in that area. The sense was from some in law enforcement that those may have gone too far, that they felt limited, that there are certain uncertainties or ambiguities in these changes that passed that session two sessions ago that tied their hands. If a person was fleeing, for example, right, could they follow that person? If someone had a mental health situation, could they intervene? These were the questions law enforcement was facing. And, and you know, to the legislature's credit, I think they reexamined that this last session and said, hey, we don't want to have ambiguity here. We want to have clarity around what is required and have additional protections for individuals when they are having interaction with law enforcement. And so that's what the legislature did in this most recent session. So I think since those changes in the last session have gone to effect, certainly I've not been hearing from law enforcement in the same way that it was a year ago after the first legislative session in which a lot of law enforcement folks said, hey, Bob, we need some clarity around this. My response was, hey, really, that's up to the legislature. When they pass a law, they're the ones that have to clarify what do they mean by the term force, for example, um, and what law enforcement can or cannot do. That said, at the end of two sessions, a lot of debate, a lot of strong feelings on both sides. I do think overall, any fair reading of what the legislature has done is they've made improvements when it comes to um, reforms in the criminal justice system in a way that I think um, respects individuals and respects law enforcement in these often difficult interactions that take place. Yeah. You've uh, undertaken a long, a years long fight on legislation uh, for gun safety. Uh, and in this past legislature, uh, you were able to, to win after a number of years yeah. uh, a ban on the sale of gun magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. People, however, are still allowed to keep their older, larger magazines. So why does this even matter? Oh, it matters because it'll save lives, right, Essex? So just to be clear for the audience, in Washington state, which we think of as a blue state, a progressive state, um, it was perfectly legal in Washington state prior to the session to purchase and use what's called a double drum magazine. This was used in the Dayton shooting, for example, where dozens and dozens of people were injured and killed in less than a minute because the shooter literally had a double drum magazine that holds 100 rounds. So he did not have to stop to reload. He can fire off with his high capacity magazines, dozens of rounds in seconds. Well, that high capacity double drum magazine was perfectly legal to purchase in Washington state. And when you see these mass shootings, what happens is shooters use these high capacity magazines when you see people get away or stop a gunman it's often when they have to stop to reload in those few vital seconds you can tackle the gunman or you can escape well with a double drum magazine what chance do you have and so finally i think in our sixth year proposing it as attorney general we did pass it with the legislature this year the ban on high capacity magazines which limits those to 10 rounds now that is perfectly appropriate for self-defense right? But also does not allow these high capacity magazines that can do so much damage. So the evidence is clear. There's been study after study that shows states that ban high capacity magazines when you have a mass shootings 
fewer lives are lost, fewer individuals are injured. And so, look, it's, it's, uh, it was a great day. The legislature adopted that, and uh, we have more work to do when it comes to keeping our community safe. Uh, but it was a long road to get that, that bill passed as agency requests legislation from my office, and we're so glad the legislature uh, finally took that step. And this is effective even though people can keep the large magazines they have now? That, that is correct. And so what you see are individuals who purchase these magazines, purchase these weapons, for example, and then go out and do something terrible. Uh, they will no longer be able to purchase those weapons here in Washington State. One of the things you've, uh, you've uh, also advocated for uh, and uh, had success with is uh, a ban on ghost guns, guns that are created without any sort of registration. Uh, I think that's been in effect for a, a year or two, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, but have you noticed any impact? Well, the, the good news on that, Essex, is you don't read too many news stories of individuals using ghost guns to commit crimes here in Washington State. Those are headlines you see across the country. But there have been an uptick in the use of these ghost guns nationwide. And just so the audience is clear, a ghost gun is something uh, that does not have a serial number, uh, that can evade metal detectors, for example. And so you can't trace them. Uh, you cannot detect them. And literally, folks can send files across the internet, and you print these out with your printers at home and put them together. And someone who is not legally entitled to own a gun can put together one of these so-called ghost guns and use it to create all sorts of criminal acts. And so here in Washington State, I did propose that we eliminate that, right, to drive those out of our system. Now, look, folks are still going to try and find a way around that. But this law has made a huge impact. You read about other states where they have a huge challenge with ghost guns. They're going to be around, but I think in Washington, we're trying to get out ahead of this issue, again, for these untraceable, undetectable, undetectable firearms, and pass that law was a critical step. Look, you're never going to completely shut these things down, right? On the earlier question about high-capacity magazines, right? Sometimes people will find things, but you need to make it as difficult as possible, and in this case, to make it illegal uh, to possess those. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, uh, Attorney General, that you have been also pushing very hard are lawsuits uh, when it comes to opioids, uh, lawsuits against the pharmaceutical companies who, uh, according to the suits anyway, flooded this state and frankly flooded the nation uh, with opioids and so many people uh, became addicted. You know, up until recently, you've been rejecting multi-million dollar settlements. Why did you put that money at risk? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I'm sometimes asked when I speak at law schools, Essex, hey, what's the toughest decision you've had as attorney general? And what I often mention are, are these opioid lawsuits where you're talking about, first of all, huge impacts to individuals and families and communities. I've spoken to way too many parents who have lost their children uh, to opioid addiction. These were thriving kids who got caught up in the addiction through a sports injury or something else that happened. They started taking opioids, they get addicted, and their lives are never the same. And so there have been, to your point, a series of lawsuits brought by myself and other attorneys general against these large corporations, often Fortune 15 corporations, that in our view acted illegally and fueled the opioid epidemic. They were deceptive in downplaying the addictive qualities, for example, of opioids is one example. So you're right that there have been a couple very high profile national settlements with AGs of both parties agreeing to resolutions with the Sackler family, for example, Purdue Pharmaceutical, Cardinal Health, big entities. Um, I rejected the two largest of those. Um, and I think I was the only attorney general to reject them both. And these are you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you told me when I was in law school, Essex, I would ever uh, uh, be offered 
$400 million to resolve a lawsuit for a client, I would say no. I would have said, you're crazy, right? That's so much money, to your point. But um, I felt in each of those proposed settlements that it simply was not enough money and not enough accountability for those companies or families, in the case of the Sackler family. And so to give you a short answer, I, I know we're in the district time, um, I just felt we could do better in Washington if we took these cases to trial or took those entities to court. Now there is significant risk with that approach, Essex. You're 100% right about that. Litigation is uncertain, but I just had to follow my instincts on that. And so far it's paid off. Um, with the Sackler case, Purdue Pharmaceutical, we rejected that. We led a coalition of a small number of states challenging that bankruptcy deal. And as a result of that, we brought in more than 100 million more for Washington state than we would have if we'd accepted the deal. Same thing with this distributor's case. We took them to trial and just reached a resolution where we're bringing in nearly $50 million more as a result of going to trial than if I'd taken the deal. So I also rejected a deal with Johnson & Johnson that my colleagues around the country virtually all accepted. We go to trial against them in September of this year. So is there a risk? Yes. Does it keep me up at night? Uh, yes, uh, to be sure. You know, it's going to be a pretty bad day at the office if, if I lost one of those cases, for example. But I have to do what I think is right as a lawyer for the people. And you asked earlier about what is justice, right? And to me, justice was not the settlement amounts those entities or families were paying for those national settlements. They needed to pay more for Washington State for the harm that they caused. Was there a risk? Yes. Uh, but has that decision, have, have those decisions paid off so far for Washington? They certainly have. And I just will add also that I have tremendous confidence in my team. Uh, they're a fantastic group of lawyers and professional staff, and I have a lot of confidence that we could deliver a positive result. And so far, that's been the case. Yeah, we've talked about uh, your lawsuits against uh, the Trump administration, but now you're fighting the Biden administration on uh, Hanford workers' safety. How do you come into conflict, conflict now with the Biden administration? Well, I'm not in conflict with them. They're in conflict with me and the people of the state of Washington and our state legislature. I mean, it's truly maddening Essex. So this goes back to the Hanford nuclear waste site, which as this audience knows, has the most highly radioactive nuclear waste in all of North America. And there've been issues related to worker safety at Hanford and the workers not having enough, the right gear to protect themselves. In fact, my first lawsuit against the president was not against Donald Trump. It was against Obama's administration over the administration's lack of protection of those workers. We won that case, by the way. In any event, the state legislature a few years ago passed a law, an excellent law, bipartisan, that gave additional protections for workers if they get sick on the job at Hanford. And hey, if someone's got a tougher job in this state than trying to clean up the nuclear waste at Hanford, let me know. It's a pretty tough job. Well, guess what happened? The Trump administration challenged that law in Washington state. We successfully defended in the federal trial court and the federal court appeals. Then Joe Biden got elected president. And to be honest, Essex, I thought that'd be the end of it, that they would not appeal the new administration. The Biden administration would not take that appeal all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But I was wrong. They did appeal it. And we went to the Tri-Cities and had a press conference with workers there to say this is outrageous. Joe Biden sort of campaigned as a friend of workers. And yet his administration, his Department of Justice, is challenging a bipartisan Washington state law that helps workers at the Hanford nuclear waste site. They still took it to the Supreme Court. Uh, we went back and argued that just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Tara Hines from my office argued, did a very good job. And we'll just wait and see what the U.S. Supreme Court decides about um, the constitutionality and legality of that Washington state law that does nothing more than give additional protections for those workers at the Hanford nuclear waste site. So the bottom line is, look, whether it's Barack Obama or Donald Trump or Joe Biden, it doesn't matter whether I support those presidents or do not support those presidents. If they take an action or their administration takes an action that harms Washingtonians, look, that's going to get my attention and they're going to see me in court. We'll be back with more after this message. 
Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Well, before we uh, move to audience questions, uh, let me ask a question that I've already seen in our audience question list, and that is your political future. Uh, you know, you uh, had uh, planned to run for governor, uh, depending on what uh, Governor Inslee did uh, back in 2020. We're coming up on 2024. Are you planning to run for governor now? Well, to be clear, I wasn't necessarily planning on running for governor. I made it clear I was open to that, thinking about that, if Governor Inslee did not run for a third term. He chose to run for a third term, so that made my decision easy to run for a third term as attorney general. I, I respect and, and like the governor a great deal. And so, you know, one thing I've learned, Essex, is, uh, you know, politics is an interesting business. And I think the best politics is to do the best you can the job you've got. And I love the job that I've got. We've got young kids at home, as we've talked about here, 14-year-old twins. And so, you know, we'll see what the governor decides to do. I'm enjoying the work I'm doing. Um, it's keeping me busy. And if the governor decides not to run for a fourth term, obviously, I would take a close look at that. Um, but right now, my focus is, well, as you can tell from this conversation, my focus is, 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 pretty, uh, is pretty clearly on the job. Yeah. Well, you've had an incredible uh, impact, uh, uh, you know, and depending on one's point of view, perhaps uh, positive <laughs> or negative as sure. attorney general. Uh, you know, what sort of impact could you have as a governor? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I've reflected on that a little bit. Um, it, it is, you know, the jobs are very different, Essex, in a certain respect, right? As attorney general, you have certain freedoms the governor does not have, right? If I want to take on the Biden administration or the Obama administration or opioid distributors not playing by the rules, I don't go to the state legislature and ask their permission, right? I don't call up the governor to ask permission. I'll give them a heads up, but that's my decision to make. And candidly, I, I enjoy that, right? I've got this great team. We go forth and seek justice, that word again that you started off. We seek justice as we see it. I get that a lot of people in the state may not agree with decisions I make, but that's part of the process. A governor is a very different position. In a certain sense, you have a wider range of authority, of course, that's clear. On the other hand, by definition, you often have to work through the legislative process um, to achieve the results you want. You know, I, I guess it's, it's just a different job. I feel the job I have now is is well suited for my for my particular skill set, and um, and if the governor decides not to run for a fourth term, obviously I would think very seriously about about running for governor, and also what the impact would be on you know uh, on the young family. And you know one thing that's clear is I, I'd only run for governor if I was sure I could still attend all of my daughter's softball games and uh, and still go climbing with my son. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move to some of the audience questions. Uh, your political future was one of those questions, uh, but there are things on uh, the audience mind as well. Uh, since we're talking about politics, one of the questions from the audience is, do you consider whether the cases you bring will be politically divisive? Do I consider whether they'd be politically divisive? I'm aware if they're divisive. Most are not, right? We do a lot of consumer protection work, right? The opioids litigation, I don't think of, those are big high stakes, but um, but I, I suspect the question gets to issues like, hey, litigation against the Trump administration, for example, right? Where clearly a lot of people in the state did not like what I was doing. I, I understand that. 
So I think the way I would answer that thoughtful question is, I'm obviously aware of that, but Essex, when it came to that litigation in particular, um, going back to that first Muslim travel ban, when trying to decide, hey, am I really gonna file a lawsuit against the president? It seemed to me there were three relevant questions that I need to ask myself as the attorney for the people. And that is, number one, are Washingtonians being harmed? Number two, do we have good legal arguments? And number three, can I, as attorney general, do I have the legal authority to bring the lawsuit? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I'll spare you the, 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 uh, the legal arguments around standing issues. But it seemed to me those three questions, if the answers were yes, yes, and yes, Washingtonians are being harmed, we have good legal arguments, and I have the authority to file the lawsuit, well, it seemed if it was yes, yes, and yes, then frankly, it's my duty to bring the lawsuit, regardless of what the political ramifications are, regardless of whether it's popular, regardless of anything else. But the rest was just sort of outside noise, and I needed to focus on my job as a lawyer for the people. And, and that's the way we tried to approach it, certainly with the Trump administration. There were plenty of lawsuits I wanted to file, but the answer to one of those questions was a no. And I think the fact that of the 52 cases that ended in a result by a federal judge or judges or the U.S. Supreme Court, we won 50 out of 52. So our, our track record speaks for itself that we were staying focused on the law. And what I would say to someone who didn't like those cases is, well, do you want a president who exceeds the law of either political party? Right. You want to have a check and a balance in our system. That's what it's all about. And I would just say, hey, well, you know, maybe focus on administration that can't get it right 50 out of 52 times when they enact executive orders or take some action that has profound impacts on the people or our environment in our state and across our country. Yeah. Uh, we talked some about this at the beginning, but uh, one of the audience members is asking uh, uh, very directly, if there comes to be a federal law that criminalizes abortion, does the supremacy clause override the Washington state constitutional protection of a woman's right to choose? And I'm not sure Washington state actually has a constitutional protection, but, uh, but please, uh, uh, what do you think about that? Yeah. So complex question, a lot of sort of ifs and, 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 and possibilities there, but number one, the governor did mention, I might've mentioned this earlier Essex, but at the press conference we had, whoever asked the question may be interested in that the governor talked about the idea of a constitutional amendment here in Washington state to enshrine the protections of a legal and safe abortion here in Washington state. So just putting that out there and the person may want to direct some questions to the legislature or the governor about that. Number two, look, there is you know, a concern that I have is obviously with this draft opinion, if it becomes the law, but also a concern of what might be next. So for example, right, if Republicans take control of the House and the Senate and the Oval Office of a congressional action, a federal law that makes abortion illegal or criminalizes that, which would have even more profound implications than this draconian and frankly extremist Supreme Court decision. So and, and let me let me interrupt. Yeah. Here. Should they do that? Should they pass such a yeah. law? If Washington were also to pass abortion rights and into the Constitution, if Washington mm -hmm. voters decided to do that, would a federal law override what then would be a Washington constitutional protection? Well, what I would say to that, Essex, is obviously that's extremely hypothetical, right? A lot depends on how things are written, both on the constitutional side and at the federal side. The job of my office would be defend that constitutional change or that state law here in Washington state against any challenge from the federal government. So maybe a good analogy would be uh, marijuana legalization. Totally different subject, right? But you got a federal law that says marijuana possession and sale is illegal. And we have a Washington state law that says, no, no, it's legal. And you've got a tension there, right? Obviously, we have prepared for potential litigation with the federal government around that. Thankfully, it never came to pass, but our duty and job would be to prepare for that and be ready to defend the will of Washington voters and the legislature 
that would be the same situation if something that extreme and that draconian were to happen at the federal level. Okay, completely different subject uh, question from our audience. Do you work with the city attorney at all when it comes to her positions on pursuing different approaches to crime in Seattle? Yeah, you know, if people often think that the AG's office, uh, sometimes people think we actually help run the city offices, right, or the county offices. They, of course, as the, the person asking the question knows, they have their own lawyers. City of Seattle, for example, has the city attorney. All cities have their city attorney. Counties have their county prosecutor's offices. So we are not, we're not their lawyers. Uh, we don't have any oversight over them. They're totally separate offices, totally different authority. So there are times when um, the city, any particular city, right, and the state AG's office, sometimes we're having conversations. Honestly, it's often Essex when there's a lawsuit between the city and the state of Washington. That happens sometimes, right? With a viaduct, for example, there was litigation where I would talk to Pete Holmes, the prior city attorney, fairly frequently about litigation between the city and the state. And so there are times where there's, there's communications. When it comes to sort of criminal enforcement, what folks may not realize, which it seems a little counterintuitive to folks, is that in Washington state, the criminal authority, if someone breaks into your house, someone steals your car, right? If you're injured, God forbid, by somebody, the criminal authority rests with either your city attorney or your county prosecutor. The county prosecutor, for example, handles the felonies. Typically, your city attorney handles the misdemeanors. The state AG's office, we actually do not have that authority. The only way we have criminal authority is if a local prosecutor, I'm in King County right now, Dan Satterberg calls and says, hey, Bob, would you take this case from us because we have a conflict and can't bring it or don't have the resources? So we have a small criminal division, but I only have authority to bring a criminal case to Essex if a prosecutor asked me to take a case. And so um, when it comes to issues with the city attorney's office, so there is conversations, obviously, work together on opioids litigation, you name it, where the city and the state are both involved in litigation. Um, but it's, it might be more limited than, than some folks think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another audience question, and again, a, a different subject. Uh, this audience member writes, some of the most pollution-impacted communities are low-income mm -hmm. and majority uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color. Are there any mechanisms in place now or planned to address this? Great, in fact, topical question. So the state legislature uh, just um, approved something called the HEAL Act, the acronym H-E-A-L. And the questioner, if they don't know about this, should look it up. My guess is they probably know all about it, but it's the Healthy Environment for All Act, if I've got my acronym correct. And it requires about seven state agencies to take specific actions to uh, address issues related to environmental justice, uh, something that's been frankly long overlooked by state policymakers and state agencies for too long. I know nowhere near the end of our time, but but just to put a fine point to it, it is well documented, Essex, of course, that the uh, negative impacts of all sorts of environmental issues are often borne by lower income communities and communities that are predominantly people of color. Um, and landfills or, or things that happen they're going to have a negative environmental consequence are often end up being the impact is borne by those communities so the heal act seeks to address that where when agencies are making decisions that they have to think about these issues before they make decisions other state agencies can choose to opt into the heal act right to take it upon themselves to follow uh, these new rules and requirements so the ag's office i think we're the very first agency to join in on that one thing i'll also add is that I've created an environmental enforcement team in my office. We did not have one before I was attorney general, but to enforce our environmental laws in the criminal and the civil context. 
And one thing we've done now is try to be a leader when it comes to environmental justice issues. We've led symposiums across the state. We're bringing folks on board who are looking at potential cases that address these issues and think about the way we file cases from an environmental justice framework. And we've hired a couple of folks to help oversee our implementation of the HEAL Act as an office. So there's a lot going on in the AG's office when it comes to this. And I appreciate the question because I don't say it's overlooked. There is some attention, of course, paid to issues related to environmental justice, but uh, but not nearly enough. And so I appreciate the question. I encourage whoever asked the question to uh, reach out to my office if they want to get. We have a lot more information we'd be happy to share with him or her. Yeah. Uh, another question in a similar vein here. Uh, some of the most diverse cities are often the most segregated in schools, workplaces, neighborhoods, and living spaces. What role can legislation play in championing integration and equity across many generations? Well, we have, look, we have a system when it comes to, I think embedded in the question was education, which is well known of disparities in our education system, um, you know, throughout our nation's history. I think I mentioned earlier, I spent a year with a judge of volunteer corps, Essex, and part of my job was tutoring in an after-school tutoring program with kids from this inner city neighborhood. And look, you know, it's, that was an eye-opener for me on comparing my educational, uh, my education as a, as a kid with what I was seeing with, with, with these children. And so, you know, the question goes to the legislature, what, what is possible legislature to do? I guess one thing I would focus on, I'm not a legislator, so I'll start with that, right? This is sort of above my pay grade outside of my, of my lane, but I'm interested in the subject. You know, there's been a lot written nationally about disparities in our education system, lack of funding, right? Whether everything from, hey, the books to the facilities to you name it. And as speaking as a son of a school teacher, look, do I think we need even greater investments in our school systems, in our students, in teachers and teacher salaries, for God's sakes? Heck yeah, we do. And and uh, and we're a long way from achieving that. Now, look, I'm not a legislator that I don't control the budget. I, that, that's not my that's not my world. But uh, but if ever was, I'd, I'd be focused on those issues, to be sure. Yeah, uh, this question comes from me, not our audience. Uh, but, uh, you know, as uh, I think. Uh, uh, Governor Inslee noted in his presentation, uh, you've defended uh, a number of lawsuits uh, based uh, on his emergency powers in the pandemic and have not lost a lawsuit on his uh, emergency powers. But I wonder if that does not tell you that maybe those emergency powers are, are too broad. Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting question, Essex. I guess, first of all, I'd say that I'm proud of the team's record, number one, on successfully defending the governor's emergency proclamations. Number two, what I would say is, you know, I recognize that um, the pandemic has had a profound impact on individuals, but also on businesses in our state. Um, I was in Quincy just last week and uh, went into a local restaurant to watch the Sounders game, the CONCACAF finals there, and talked to the owner there about, you know, he was able to barely hold on, you know, through the, through the pandemic. And so, you know, I recognize that there are strong views on those orders and there are real consequences to businesses and individuals as a result of that. That said, you know, our job is to defend the governor. And, and do I believe that those actions help keep our state healthier and safer as a result of those actions? You bet. And so, you know, the question of what is the right amount of authority given to a governor, that is 100 percent for the legislature to decide and ultimately the people. In Washington state, it is clear the governor has broad authority. There's no doubt about that. And you've seen in other states where challenges to governor's proclamations in other states were struck down. The governor's powers were struck down where the authority is not so great. And so, um, you know, I know the legislature had conversations about that, but, you know, it's hard to argue with the fact that 
proportionate to our state, the fact that we were first hit by COVID, the number of deaths we've had, those governor, those governor proclamations undoubtedly saved lives. And it is always a balance. And I can assure you, you know, I can't speak about the substance of conversations I've had with the governor, uh, but I obviously, but I, I can say that, you know, there were times where I, I was glad that wasn't my job, you know, in making those decisions. And I would say that we had a governor who was aware of the consequences uh, of both sides. And I think those weighed heavily on him. And, and, and he chose a path that I think undoubtedly saved lives. And frankly, we're constitutional as well. Hey, if the legislature or the people don't like that or want to place limits around that, they can do that. That's their authority. Um, but our duty is clear in my office to defend those laws. And we did that successfully. There were challenges in state court, federal court, eastern Washington, western Washington, you name it. And we were successful in defending those all the way through. Just uh, oh, maybe 15 seconds or so left. But I just wondered, you know, we've had a broad discussion. Is there, is there a final thought uh, you'd like to leave people with? Well, I guess maybe just the final thought is kind of where we started. You talked about justice, right? And and uh, I think folks have different ideas of what justice means. But I, I just I just sort of hope from this conversation, I'm glad you led with that, right? It's something that I think about every day. It's it's my whole life is that. And I guess what I'd want people to know is that um, if there's anything they are experiencing, a consumer issue, a civil rights issue, an environmental justice issue, you name it, to contact our office. Most of the cases we bring, frankly, uh, Essex, on behalf of the people come because somebody writes to us with a problem, and that leads us to explore that. And so really encourage people to reach out. Really appreciate you, Essex, and all, all the questions and the, and the questions from the audience. I've been fighting a really terrible cold the last couple of days. COVID negative, thank God. Uh, but appreciate your patience with me this morning as I uh, fought my way through. It's great to see you. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Essex and the Attorney General for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions, which were really good in this episode. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Krisnovich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.